Hello, welcome to an episode in the Let Fuel Prosper series. My name is Dr. Vance Gann. I hope you're having a prosperous day. Well, today we have someone that I'm just pleased to have on today who talks a lot about energy, the future of energy, China, how all these things in, influence, and, and more importantly, how government gets in the way in so many ways. And it's it's Daniel Turner. Daniel, welcome to the Let Fuel Prosper show. It is great to be on with you. Thank you for having me. Well, it's really a pleasure to have you on today and have a good conversation. Um, we, we got to meet at the, the bowels of of Congress <laughs> and the House Ways and Means Committee, you know, a couple months ago, and we'll talk about some of that, but it was really a pleasure to meet you then, so I'm, I'm glad you have you on the program. So for the audience, let me go ahead and read your bio, and then we'll get right into it. Um, so Daniel Turner is the founder and executive director of Power the Future. For nearly 20 years, he has worked in communications and public affairs for several nonprofits and various campaigns. Daniel started PTF to advocate for rural energy communities in the Power Center of Washington, D.C., which makes those policy decisions that impact energy workers. Daniel is an expert in energy and environmental issues as they pertain to jobs, rural communities, the U.S. economy, international affairs, and our national security. His op-eds have been published in dozens of outlets, and he is a regular guest on multiple programs. Daniel is a, a native of Queens, New York. He and his spouse live on a working farm where they focus on heritage breeds, including sheep, chickens, and turkeys. Daniel also serves on the board of directors of a nonprofit that does relief work in Africa. That's awesome. That's a lot of good stuff there, Daniel. And I'm really pleased to have you on the program. I'm sure we'll get into a lot of that stuff. But like I do with every guest, let's start off with what motivates you to do what you do each and every day? Yeah, I, I love rural America and I became a rural American by choice. I live in, in Shenandoah Valley in Virginia where we have uh, our farm. And I, as you just read, I was born in Queens. Um, I was born in New York City. I'm from a long New York, long story New York family. Um, and I have great love for our urban centers. And clearly I worked in DC, the power center. But I moved to rural America because, well, for one, they more aligned to my values and just the way I like to live. I like my land. I like my privacy. I like my guns. But I started my organization, and what motivates me every day is really fighting back from that 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 awful pejorative they call flyover country. Right? There are the the majority of Americans used to be rural, and that's switched in the last hundred years. Now the majority live in urban or suburban areas. But it's our urban, uh, our, our, our rural communities that grow our food and, and, and produce our energy and fight our wars, quite frankly. Um, and they're often overlooked, they're ignored. Um, and these power centers like New York and DC and San Francisco, they make decisions about rural America and, and no one is their voice. And so what motivates me are those rural communities that really make our country survive. Wow. Yeah, that's great. What and, and so that is a huge move from Queens, New York, the Shenandoah Valley in, in um, Virginia. What made you want to go, you know, and, and be in rural America compared to to the city? Lifestyle issues, yeah. quality of life issues. Um, I struggled with the fact that I was born in, in Queens and then lived for a long time in Washington, D.C. And there wasn't just a ah, look, you're a Republican and it's a Democrat city. Democrats are going to win. And you kind of swallow the, the, you know, bit the bullet on it. Yeah. But a true disdain and a disrespect mm. for me and my values. And quite frankly, this is your expertise here, doctor, not mine. <laughs> on, on the financial side, mm. the fiscal side, I got tired of paying taxes for programs that I thought were terrible. And I got tired of paying taxes. And you know what? In the simplest example, the fourth time my car windows were broken mm. and the cops said, well, you must have left something in the back. And, you know, try not to let it happen again. And like as if it was my fault. And I thought, I'm tired of giving these cities all this money 
to live in fear, to live in, in filth, and to have just total disrespect for my values, whether it's life issues or school choice issues or Second Amendment issues. Um, and so I said, I got to get the hell out of here. And I did. <laughs> yeah, no, that's good. You know, I, I grew up in um, South Houston. So it was also a lot of you know, breaking burglaries and everything else that was happening down there. And and, and I, I went to school in Lubbock and Texas Tech University for a while. It was different, you know, but going from Houston to, to Lubbock. And now I live just north of, of Austin in a place called Round Rock. And it's a little bit, it's not rural, but, you know, it's a suburb of, of Austin and everything. But it, it I, I agree with you. There is something about having those values. And you have kids. I've got three kids who are pretty young kids. You want them to be able to grow up in those communities as well so that they have the best opportunity for the future. And and, in, uh, and too often in these other places in urban areas, they just don't get that. And progressives, these blue, you know, in Texas, we call it the blueberries in the sea of red. You have these places where it's just bad for families, ultimately, you know, too high taxes and high housing. And and then all the other things that you talked about a minute ago with crime and everything else, it's, it's, it's unfortunate what so many are doing to our country and to our families. And, and a big part of that is, is energy, the, the workforce, the, the work that you're doing each and every day. And so I'm glad to hear kind of that transition that you have going on. What are, what are some of the big policy issues that are, that, that you think about each day? Yeah. It's funny when I started the organization, um, Trump happened to be president. I didn't start it because he was president. I started it, and that's a whole other podcast backstory, the origin story of Power of the Future. But um, he was president, and, and I started off this organization, what people thought were, well, you're just a bunch of Trump cheerleaders. And when it comes to energy policy, we were, because we saw the consequences of it, right? We saw what having a robust energy uh, economy did for the price of goods, for, for the increase of jobs, to, to combat inflation for world peace, uh, right? Russia didn't invade Ukraine in the last administration. There's a reason why, because they didn't have the cash, right? Iran was quiet because they didn't have the cash. When we've doubled the price of oil, we've doubled their income. And what do they do with a lot of money? You know, they don't build schools for girls, uh, right? They, they, they invade other countries and they launch terrorism. And that's tragic, but that's just reality. And so I, I started the organization, uh, you know, and this was what was happening. And now to answer your question, what was worrying me is how the organizations had to pivot because now we are on the attack mode to say, look at what we are doing. Day one, right? The simplest example that all of your audience will remember, Keystone Pipeline, right? It's 11,000 guys working on this pipeline, went through the full faith and credit of the American approval system. They didn't make a deal with President Trump. They made a deal with the United States and got all of their approvals. And like that, the president pulled it. And when you ask someone like John Kerry, what about the 11,000 jobs? His response was basically something like, well, now they have the opportunity to work for the good economy, the green economy. And I thought, boy, that's very easy for you to say because it's not your job, right? Yeah. So, so that's what bothers me. That's what I preoccupies me is the continual attack on fossil fuels American energy writ large and the consequence it's having to our economy, our national security, all of the above. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's great. I'm glad you're doing that work, Daniel, because it's so important each and every day. And, you know, whenever I was writing my dissertation, it was actually on oil prices and how they affect the economy and how the economy affects oil prices. They're endogenous. There's not these exogenous shocks that come out of nowhere. They're endogenous. What's going on in the global economy, the U.S. economy, uh, what's happening with OPEC, uh, what's happened in the United States. And so these policies really do matter of how much that you are restricting permits, of how much that you're trying to move to the unreliable 
quote unquote renewable sources of energy away from the reliable sources of energy. And, and this has economic impact as an economist. It influences the cost of almost everything that we buy. It, it creates inflationary pressure um, and it makes it to where we are just not as secure both economically and you know, national security um, from to your great point a minute ago about peace and prosperity that can, can be provided. And, and it's quite extraordinary where you can see such a massive change from the Trump administration, where I was in the Trump administration for a year as chief economist of the Office of Management and Budget, and we were always looking at ways to remove regulations. Uh, how can we, I think we ended up doing six to one for every new one, there was six that was removed or seven to one. It was somewhere, it was well above the two to one that the president had initially announced. And I think that was one of the biggest things about the Trump administration. The Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was also important, um, but the deregulation I think was just huge. And then what's unfortunate about that, Daniel, is that you get a new administration comes in and they just scrap it all. They, they, they throw it all out and then they add more. You know, and yeah. it's already been over $300 billion of new regulations from the Biden administration, according to the American Action Forum. Maybe it's even higher than that. But it, but the big part has been the energy sector. And I know you've taken some heat on this uh, because some of them, some of the members of Congress during our Ways and Means hearing, they were going after you. And, and to be honest, I didn't have a lot of your background going in. And so I was caught a little off guard. Uh, but, <laughs> but what's, you know, what's what's some of that about? What's going on? Yeah, you know, I, I that was an interesting moment, and and I I would like to testify again because I have more to say, quite frankly. So I would welcome the opportunity, and 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 I would welcome the opportunity to sit shoulder to shoulder with you and do it. If I can just go back to a second though of the Trump administration, sure. I would love to ask the members of that committee something. I would love to just just have an honest conversation, right? You will know this because you were sitting there with me. Your audience may not is. A lot of these members, they have their five minutes of the cameras on them and they walk out the room and yep. you don't get a chance to actually interface with them. Um, but I would love to say to them to dispel so many misconceptions. When we had the previous president who was big oil, right? He's a fossil fuel, fossil fuel shill and he's in the pockets of big oil. All those phrases you hear. What did big oil do with with the lack of regulation, right? What did they do with one of their 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 shills in their pocket? They produced more oil for the greatest number of people at the lowest price point possible, increasing the amount of of, of revenue for the treasury, hiring the most people in the oil and gas industry in, in in record, and and we didn't see pollutions go up, emissions went down, we didn't see spills that were unattended. So so. Why are all these things that we hear about corporate greed, right? The oil companies are raising prices because they're greedy. Why did why weren't they greedy when the oil shill was their president, right? Why why didn't they spike oil to $125 a barrel? Why didn't we have $5 a gallon gas? So it just it's it's such an angering moment to say all what you say are a bunch of lies. When the free market was allowed to work, it didn't greed. It didn't it wasn't greedy. It didn't pollute. It, it, it created more, it let people prosper. Yeah, yeah. And we could do that again if we just had the political will to do it. And that's my marvel. The greatest thing the president did in the previous administration for the oil and gas industry was he let them do their jobs. And when free people are allowed to do their jobs, they usually do it pretty darn well if government gets out of the way. Amen. Amen. I totally agree with you. Um, and, and, and you're right. You don't get much time to go back and forth with those folks. They'll just say what they want to say and then they then they leave or something else. But it was quite fascinating. Kind of the discussion that we had with the hearing was was basically yeah. what happened during the Inflation Reduction Act. There were these EV tax credits and there was a lot of other just nonsense that was in there for a green energy agenda that, that the Biden administration has been pushing. 
uh, that was passed by Democrats, right? And so the Republicans who came in, Representative Jason, well, Chairman Jason Smith of the Ways and Means Committee wanted to call this one together. And so we were able to go in and, and testify on what the high cost is of these actions and how it wasn't going to bring down costs and it was going to lead to other problems in the process. And we've continued to see that, you know, Daniel, yeah. is, is that this is all continuing to come true, unfortunately, for the American people. What, what is another one of the big things that, and, and we could go, was there anything else you wanted to say about, about the hearing? Well, I, you know, my, my biggest contentious moments, my back and forth with, um, especially with Bill Pascrell from Jersey, who has been in Congress, I think, longer than I've been alive, and I'm close to 50. And he took a lot of umbrage. His staff took umbrage with the fact that I um, have tweeted several times, there's no such thing as a climate crisis. Um, there's only communism painted green. And I did not call him a communist. I wouldn't call any member of, of Congress, unless they, of course, embrace the, 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 the claim themselves. But yes. the reason why I call the movement communist, and I tried to explain to him, and it didn't go over well, because, again, no one wants to have a back and forth. They want their moment in, in, the, in, the, in the cameras for their campaign ad. But, but I don't call it communist because I'm trying to be hyperbolic, right? First of all, it is an economic system, the Green Agenda. Ask them. The, the, the Green New Deal's uh, author who was the first chief of staff of Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez, Chakra Obadi was his last name. He is quoted saying, you think this is about a climate change thing? This is about how to redo the American economy thing. So they, they call the Green Movement a redoing of the economy. I call it communist because it is a centralized government. It is a centralized system of economics. The Biden administration says, you will drive electric vehicles by 2035. There's nothing that sprouts up from the people Right. You don't get to choose it. It doesn't allow market signals like a communist system. If we're going to all have electric vehicles, we talked about this at the hearing as well, especially Drew Horn, who was sitting next to me, who's an expert on, on minerals and mining. If we're going to have electric vehicles, we need copper, cobalt and lithium. We have these mines in America. Why can't we open them? You can't. Climate change. So it yep. doesn't allow market signals. So what else is a system of economics? that is top-down centralized, that doesn't allow free market and market signals, but communist. So you're mad at me for pointing out the fact? I mean, I could also say you're an old white man. Are you going to be mad at me for that too? So yeah. you know, let's just call it what it is. This is communism. And there are people who love communism, but I hate communism. And I will call you a communist as long as you, you continue to act like one. Yeah. And I mean, right, rightfully so, as far as hating communism. I mean, we've seen what the destruction has been from the places that have done that, you know, whether it be China, Russia, you know, uh, others throughout history have went down that route. And what it leads to is control of the people. There, there's no free markets. There's no free people. It has to be control because it's all top down. I mean, it, it's essentially, Daniel, what we're seeing with Bidenomics. You know, there's been, I guess, with the last couple of weeks, we're recording this on July 12th, 2023. And, and Biden's been going around talking about Biden, Bidenomics and all the, the benefits of it and what we're seeing now. And it's like, are, are you serious? Are you living in the same world that we are now where you have, you know, four out of the last five months gross domestic output, which is the average of gross domestic income and gross domestic product has been declining four out of the last five months. Household Crazy. employment is flat over the last five months. I mean, there, there are so many other things. We can go, inflation was the highest in a generation. It's, there's some disinflation now, but it's still higher than what we normally would have. And for more than two years, workers have not had as much of a pay increase as inflation, meaning they're losing out on their purchasing power you know, uh, month after month. It's just, it's just ridiculous. This is, but this is the result of the top-down approach of more government spending, higher taxes, and more regulation, and, and not having the abundant 
um, energy source of oil and gas. And natural gas has been such a, a benefit for us of keeping electricity rates low and reducing yeah. those carbon emissions. I mean, um, it's just one thing after another where this economic system, I think you're exactly right, is much more of a top-down approach. Yeah, one of the, the great lies that the green movement tells, and there are several huge lies, but one of the most egregious ones is that if we move to wind and solar, we will no longer use fossil fuels. Um, not only is it a lie because green technology is made from fossil fuels, right? They're not green. They call it green, but you use more oil and gas and coal to make wind turbines and solar panels uh, to make electricity than if you just burn those fossil fuels directly to make electricity. So they're not green. We're not getting rid of fossil fuels. But And, and Daniel, real quick with that. So what yeah. you mean is, is that in going in and building the windmills and the turbines and everything, the production process is still going to use fossil fuels to, to create it, right? Absolutely. It's going to use it to create those things, empower those things, and transport them, and more fossil fuels. So you, you can burn coal to make electricity. And they say, that's bad. But China can burn coal to make solar panels that we then use to make electricity, and that's somehow green. And you say, well, why, why is the former bad, but the latter is good? Why can China burn coal and they don't burn coal responsibly the way we do here in the States? But, but the other, the big part of the green lie is that, you know, electricity production is, is not all that fossil fuels do. We, there are millions, literally millions of products. I can see many around you and you can see many around me that are all made from fossil fuels and also products we can see like medicines and, and, and laundry detergent and all rubber plastic, et cetera. But you were just talking about the high cost of inflation from Bidenomics. So much of it is driven from the fact that we've made these products expensive. We've made nitrates and phosphates and fertilizer expensive, which has raised the price of all food. And I was telling people last year, we're still eating the 2021 crops, right? We're still eating 2021 wheat. We haven't even started to harvest 2022. And now we have, and now we're eating 2022 wheat, but we haven't even harvested 2023 wheat. And, and you know, I tell people all the time, although farmers don't ever like to talk about pricing, it's considered bad manners. You know, a couple of years ago, I was paying $7.50 a bale for hay delivered. This last year, I paid close to $12 a bale. That's just all making. And then what do I do with, 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 with the sheep I sell? I have to raise the price of the sheep, which means it trickles down, trickles down. When Biden says trickle down economics doesn't work, it totally works. Yeah. For the negative Biden economics. Biden is the biggest trickle down president we've seen. Yes. It's all trickle down misery. That's right. That's right. Now, I've been talking about that as well. I think that's a great point I mean, because there's so much to dig into there. You know, oil and gas. So I, I live in Texas, born, born and raised uh, with school here. I mean, I had that one year out in Virginia, but then I got back to Texas as fast as I could. Um, <laughs> and, you know, oil, oil is king, you know, for a long time. Texas has diversified a lot of its economy over time. You know, Texas used to be about half of its economy was really all not quite half, maybe a third was oil and gas activity. And even the state's budget about a quarter of it was coming from oil and gas activity. But as the state diversified, especially after the 1980s when we had the crash and everything then, it, you know, they hit Texas really hard and then diversified. And, and you've seen that in some other states, Louisiana, where I do some work as well. You know, they've been diversifying some. And it, it's interesting though, because when you look at some of the other countries that aren't diversifying their, their assets, like Iran and a lot of places in the Middle East, they're so dependent on oil. And some say, well, that's all we need to move away from oil and gas. We'll have more peace. And it's like, no, wait a minute. Maybe we could produce more here. You know, they kept talking about we're going to hit peak oil and peak oil. We, we've heard this for years, right, Daniel? I mean, decades now. And, and the problem is, is you hit the peak based on the, res, the, the amount of oil that you found today based on current technology. But then yeah. we come up with hydraulic fracturing. We come up with new ways that is, is coming up with great innovations to find new oil that's out there 
to where, you know, I'm not sure when or if we will ever run out of oil, but we will no. run out of it if we stop it through this regulation much faster than otherwise. Jimmy Carter talked about peak oil by the year 2000 in his 76 campaign. And, and what would the language, the language was what we hear now, you know, the experts all agree, the scientists confirm that we will run out of oil or we will hit peak oil by the year 2000. And everyone was petrified. And we've everywhere we seem to look for oil and gas, we find it. Is there, is, so it, it kind of makes you wonder if it's not a finite resource, if it's replenishing a lot faster than than we actually thought it was because we seem to have a lot of it. But going back to your diversification uh, question, which is such a great like macroeconomics question, if you recall back in 2018, 2019, and I just thought this was fascinating. There's another dissertation, doctor, if you want to write yeah. another one. Yeah. 2018 or 2019, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia issued that tourist visas were no longer necessary for certain countries, particularly America. You could just come as, as a regular tourist and come and visit Saudi Arabia. They made a huge push to say, we want to become the tech capital of the Middle East. Um, they gave licenses, uh, driver's licenses to women, although there's a lot of question as to whether or not de facto women are allowed to drive, but they at least changed the rule. And everyone said, boy, what is happening with Saudi Arabia? You know what's happening with Saudi Arabia? Oil was $45 a barrel. Mm. And when it's 90% of your economy, you cannot survive at $45 a barrel. Well, it's been roughly 70, 75 consistently now for the last two years. All that's gone. Saudi Arabia is no longer talking about we're going to become a tech center. Saudi Arabia is back to like oil is back, baby. And they're doing everything they can to raise. They announced another million barrel cut in production and they will yep. announce it again. Oil last I saw is at 75 today. They yep. want to get it back to 90 and they will cut production again. And people have asked me, well, why would they do that? Why would they want to hurt their people? They don't care about their people. They're an oligarchy. Like I said, they don't let women drive. And if you are, they don't allow anything but but mosques. You can't even open a, 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 a Sunni mosque, let alone you can't open a Christian church. There, there's no rights in Saudi Arabia. They don't care about the people. All the oil belongs to the king. Some people speculate the king is worth a trillion dollars. No one knows how wealthy he really is. Every drop of oil is his. He doesn't give a damn about the people. So, so what have we done with Bidenomics? We've empowered the Saudis again to be rich and all those liberal reforms out the window. Yep. And it was interesting too, you know, during the Trump years where we were, you know, energy independent is what the, the, the call was, but basically we were exporting more, you know, there was, because there was so much oil that was being produced in America that it allowed for us to have more exports to um, Europe and other places across the globe. So they didn't have to be so dependent on Russia and others. Then what happens? You start overregulating oil and gas and you don't have those same connections. Now they start getting some more of their oil and gas, natural gas from, from Russia. And now there's this connection that created a lot of problems for, for Europe whenever Russia invaded Ukraine. Uh, you know, and so all these things, going back to your peace and prosperity earlier, you know, Daniel, I'm, I'm more a classical liberal, libertarian in a lot of ways. I want as limited government as possible. Get government out of the way, because I think that that's what it brings about free people, you know, and, and, and free markets is really just free people, of people interacting and exchanging based on a, a mutual benefit of, of needs and desires, right? And when we start breaking that up with different governments, and a lot of the governments across the globe will say China's bad, others are bad, but, but oftentimes we're, and I've said this before, but we're pointing at others, but then there are three fingers that are still pointing back at us to where yeah. I think we've really got to look internally and say, you know what, this binomics doesn't work. Maybe people didn't like Trump. Maybe people didn't like some of the Trumponomics, but I don't, but it's difficult to argue 
that things were improving substantially. The highest real median household income in, on record, the lowest poverty rates on record across different demographics and everything else. Um, and, and I think a big part of that was the oil and gas activity that was happening to keep prices lower than otherwise so businesses could flourish. Um, and, I, and so I wonder what your thoughts are on that of, of how can we get back to some of that soon before we go too far down this route of, of socialism and communism? Well, that's the problem. Uh, and that's why I call it the first big lie of the green movement is this belief that wind and solar will replace fossil fuels. They won't. Um, first of all, they don't work. They will not replace fossil fuels in electricity production. They are very expensive. They're intermittent at best. They only work about 15, 20% capacity. Heck, we could pull out ERCOT's renewable energy grid mix right now in real time. And I guarantee you it's producing about 20% of its quote unquote capacity. And solar is probably producing about 40% of its capacity. So they're terrible technologies. But again, the lie is that all of these other things fossil fuels do are never going to be replaced. So by making wind and so by making oil and gas expensive, we've made those products expensive and that has made life very expensive. And if you are of a certain economic status or if you are John Kerry, maybe 30% more for your electric bill isn't the end of the day. Maybe 30% more for your grocery bills is not a deal breaker. And you're like, ah, oh, it's too bad. This was a dollar. Now it's a dollar 30. That's expensive. But for the average American family of four, which I think it's 58,000 a year or in income or 52,000, that's 30% is, is a deal breaker, right? That is a deal breaker. And, and so this agenda, the people that it claims to want to help are the ones who are suffering the most out of it. And there's nothing more DC in my mind than telling people that a $2 a gallon problem of gas is solved by a $60,000 EV solution. And that's what they tell you. They're like, whoa, gas prices wouldn't be a problem if you had, a, had an EV. It's like, yeah, if I had a private jet, it would be a lot easier to get to get to my parents right now. As well. <laughs> but but this is, there's almost like it, like a neoplatonism of this, the way the world should be. And I wish the world should be. And there's some need for speculation and, and, and achievement and desire but we also have to have our feet planted on the damn ground and to say like, I wish the world didn't run on oil and gas, but it does, right? It does. Everything is made, produced, grown, harvested, manufactured, transported. Everything requires energy. And if you make energy expensive, you make all of those things expensive. You could wish it away all you want, but your policies wishing it away are not going to make it so. And we do have a bunch of neoplatonists in Congress who are legislating hopes and dreams and, and just bringing about more misery on their people. Yeah, no, that, that's right. It's unfortunate, it really is. It's one of those things, again, where it goes back to, you know, what Friedman always said, of don't judge a policy by its intentions, but by its results, right? And the results are, are bad uh, whenever you think about this. And, you know, we've, we've talked a little bit about this with, with Texas and some of the things that are going on in Texas and other states, um, Louisiana and, and others, have been moving more towards, you know, at least figuring, trying to figure out ways to fight back against what the federal government does with the production tax credits and other things that are going on. One of the things that was passed in, in Texas this year during, this, during the legislative session was a way to provide um, loan guarantees for natural gas projects. And so it's, it, it's kind of a counter, counter to these big subsidies and tax breaks for wind and solar by trying to provide, in some sense, subsidies to natural gas. It's, it's not my preferred option because I would rather, I think two wrongs kind of don't make a right, but I, I get the push that they're trying to do. It, it's very difficult for states to fight back against what the federal government's doing, but do you, have you found any other ways that maybe states really could start to, to fight back some? 
Yeah, you know, I've talked to a number of governors and surprisingly no one's taken me up on this, but I keep asking them to be to be energy sanctuary states. We have no problem with governors who just thwart federal immigration law and say we're not going to comply and and shove it. And even the government says, well, or, or marijuana laws. Marijuana is still illegal, uh, but not on the state level. And governors like we're not having D.C. tell us. And I won't mention governors by name, but I've spoken to a number of governors from energy states to say, tell the Biden EPA to shove it. Just tell them no, like we're not going to comply, right? This is my state and it is my duty as the governor of my state to provide the, the most prosperity for my people. And this industry is very important to our prosperity. And it's what funds our teachers and doctors and first responders, right? It's what contributes to this, the treasury at, at the state level. I would love to see more of that. I'd love to see if, if we ever got good people back in the administration and boy, you'd be a key role for that. Not that I would ever, you know, wish upon you another stint in D.C. But but what I'd love to see is dismantling some of these federal agencies and, and reallocating the power to the state level. I, I hate to even have to say, of course, I want a clean environment because I find it insulting to think that. But you have to say this to the left, right? Of course, yeah. I want clean air and clean water. And I live on a farm. I, I, I drink my own water and, and I breathe my air and I actually have land. So, of course, I want clean land. I'm not for dismantling the, the desirability of what the EPA does, but there is no way in hell you can convince me some bureaucrat at his desk in D.C. cares more about Texas than, than Texas does, right? There's no way to convince me that some bureaucrat, and you could do that in everything, you know, education, et cetera. Take the power of the EPA and move it to the state level. And your state EPA should be way more, not that I want powerful government, but your state, your Texas EPA should be more powerful than DC's because no one cares about Texas more than Texans. And it's insulting to think that like, we're gonna all work together for the good of my backyard. No, you're not, because no one loves us more than we love ourselves. It's, uh, there are so many things you could do to make the government run more efficiently and to get a lot of this this bureaucratic red tape out of the energy industry, which would lower prices and bring about prosperity. Yep, yep, uh, that that's exactly right, Daniel. And I, you know, when I, as you're talking there, I was thinking about how much influence a lot of these government bureaucrats have. I mean, these are massive agencies: the EPA, the Department of Energy. You, you know, I, I think at some point it'd be great to end them, right? We we don't need them. These were not intended. I don't think for the federal government to be involved, these should be state level decisions. Um, I guess you could consider that you have across state lines, you're gonna have trade and flows and you know the, the environment is influencing different things, but at the same time, states should be able to, to, to foster competition. You know, this, this idea of federalism, this um, system, this, this competition of, of different states, we should allow that to flourish and see what works and, and what doesn't. And what we've seen so far is that really free market capitalism uh, with natural gas production and fracking and everything else helps reduce carbon emissions. You know, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm one, Daniel, I don't know where you're at on this, but I also question of how costly carbon emissions are to the planet, um, <laughs> that we need carbon emissions. We're breathing out carbon right right now. And, yeah. um, and, and at the same time, we need it for the globe to... To, to, to grow, to, for us to have greenery and everything else. I mean, I think, you know, in, in my view, God created this 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 world uh, for us to have dominion over and, and have control over. I, I agree with you, too, that we need to make sure that we're not depleting the resources inefficiently and over abusing the system and everything else. But I, but I, I really struggle with the assumption by many on the left and the green agenda that 
we are going to die soon or the planet is going to blow up because of carbon emissions when in fact we're seeing a lot of, uh, of things that are not that are contrary to that but I, but I wonder what say you about some of that well it shows you how the goalposts always shift with the left and it's another reason why this movement is purely communist because their 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 uh, outcomes are purely political right their outcomes are never tried are never based in market uh, results their outcomes are it's a political result to say everyone drives a, a, an ev right why is that good you explain to me why that is good as opposed to everyone has more money in the bank that's that's an economic outcome and and so since a communist movement it's 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 motivating factors are all political and and arbitrary and and shifting and so emissions is one of those things it used to be toxic gases that got qualified as methane that now has become greenhouse gases and now specifically it's carbon dioxide we've convinced ourselves that carbon dioxide is now uh, a poison and and you see people like the president in scotland last year when he talked about being with world leaders to rid the world of carbon and now i know he struggles with with erudition let's be polite um, and, and, and alertness, but holy cow, this is like basic freshman year biology. You want to rid the world of carbon. I got to tell you, that's bad, right? Yeah. Like I don't want that as a result because no. we really need carbon. Um, and we need carbon dioxide to, to, to live. And so, yeah, this idea that like, we have to stop carbon dioxide. Why it, it's not hanging in the, there's not more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere that is causing us to breathe less. If there is more, and even if there is more, more of it is being absorbed and returned into oxygen. The other lie or, or, or joke that used to crack me up is when they talk about the Amazon. They're the lungs of the earth. We have to protect the Amazon of the lungs of the earth because it produces so much oxygen. Well, it produces so much oxygen because it inhales the same amount of carbon dioxide in that area. There aren't these waves of oxygen moving from the Amazon up to around... There's not a pattern of carbon dioxide like 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 the jet stream. What the heck does this mean? It's the lungs. It's all a bunch of lies. Um, if you really wanted to get rid of CO2, we would have a national tree planting. But there isn't a national tree planting agenda because bureaucrats in D.C. don't make any more power if they plant trees. But if they get to come up with a regulation so that the Van Skin pod, podcast has to follow and they get to send an inspector to your house, well, that's power. And so that's how they're going to get rid of CO2 through a regulatory process that takes away your freedom. That's what their agenda is about completely, because no one benefits from planting trees, not politically benefit. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I hope they don't listen because you might have given them an idea. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you never know what they're going to try next. It's just, it's, it's, it's crazy game that they have. But, uh, but no, I think you're exactly right. And as we're, as we're wrapping up here, Daniel, I know some other things that, that you write about and tweet about, and people should go check you out there as well, is kind mm -hmm. of uh, uh, China and, and, and the, the trade with China and some of the things that are, that are going on there. And I, I wanted to get some of your thoughts about what your thinking is right now of what's happening there. Well, we've done a series of, of white papers, um, and, and now we got to start working with you on white papers because it'd be great to have, have some yeah. of your, your intelligence on this. But we've done a series of white papers talking about how much China is benefiting from this green agenda. 70% of everything manufactured in the green space is manufactured in China. A solar, wind, EVs, batteries, et cetera. China gets all these accolades because look how green they are. Look how much green technology they manufacture. Well, they're manufacturing it because we're buying it. Mm. Right. So it's transferring all of this wealth to China to make crappy products that they're building in West Texas that will not withstand the next ice storm. 
Um, so somehow that makes China green. And those factories, what are they using? Uh, coal. Yeah. Right. So, so they're not. There is no wind turbine factory that runs on wind turbine. There's no solar factory that runs on solar. It doesn't produce uh, enough energy. There aren't enough hydrocarbons to produce the power to either melt the quartz for crystalline quartzite solar panels, to melt the plastics for the wind turbines. It's, they're just so. So China's making a ton of money off of this, and they also control a lot of the rare earth market, 95% of it. So all of these rare earth metals and, and, and metals and minerals that are in these products, China controls. So we have on the one hand, the Biden administration that says, OPEX a cartel, we have to get rid of them, we have to go green. I don't wanna be in bed with anyone, but but certainly I am way more afraid of China than I am of, of, of the OPEC cartel. We can defeat OPEC easily. Texas could defeat OPEC. OPEC, as a reminder, was created to compete with Texas, not America, Texas. OPEC was started to fight Texas. Texas can take on OPEC with one hand tied behind its back if what we're allowed to do what it does best. But why are we gonna surrender that fight, which we can win, and fight with China, which right now we cannot win? And Biden is taking a lot of credit saying, we're going to be manufacturing these things in America. We're not, we're assembling them. We're buying all the raw materials made in China shipped across the Pacific, and guys are connecting them like Ikea furniture and putting them up and saying, that's not sustainable jobs. That's not a manufacturing economy. That's an assemblyman economy. That's a stock boy economy. And not knocking those jobs, all jobs have value, but that is not what drives economies. That's why China's economy continues to grow and ours has been a little stagnant. So China scares me. It scares me that we are getting in bed with this uh, this country that truly hates us and for something as important as our as our energy that should scare every American. Yeah, no, good points there. Um, good stuff for us to think about as well. And, you know, recently I went on a trip through the West Texas and up to, to Denver and uh, my family and I, we were, we were driving, took a nice road trip up there. And I, I took a picture of some windmills that are out there in West Texas. And I used to drive by them all the time as I was driving from Houston to Texas Tech and everything. And, you know, but now there, there are really five things that I wrote down that I think about now when I see windmills, the green energy agenda, redistributed pro profits, unreliable source of energy, waste of taxpayer money, and we need to let markets work instead. You know, and, and when I when I see that not happening, and when I see the the green energy agenda, it, it's really an agenda about increased poverty. It, it, it's an it's an agenda about less opportunity. And if so, if we want people to prosper and have more opportunities to overcome obstacles, it's it's not down that path. And I mean, we saw a stark uh, reality of how that works with the Texas freeze of 2021, where, you know, my family, we were out with for four days without without any electricity or anything. We went and stayed with, with our some of our friends. And a lot of that was because of the green energy that's here could not make could not make it. The windmills kept kept, you know, stopped um, turning and, and the sun, you know, they were covered in ice. So they weren't getting the sun. So there wasn't any solar energy as well. And then that tri triggered a lot of the natural gas plants off as well. And so it made a lot of problems that we have here and we don't want that. We also see that Daniel, I know you've looked at this as like Germany, they've went down this route for a while and then they're using wood and, and other things mm -hmm. in, in, inside to keep their house warm, which is even worse for you. You know, yeah. uh, and, and so this is just a bad direction that we're going. And so I, I'd love to get your last words, your last thoughts here with us today on anything else that you'd like to talk about. Well, the best indicator of, of future activity is is past performance, right? We don't have to be hyperbolic or, excuse me, hypothetical and say, we hope that when you look at wind in particular, don't look to the future of what we hope. Again, don't be Plato. We hope this will be this one day. Look at the past and see where it's worked. And Germany is the best example. 
uh, they were paying nine cents per, per kilowatt uh, hour in the year 2000. Then they decided to go green. 20 something years later and half a trillion euro, trillion, 500 billion euro later of a green agenda, they were paying $7 per kilowatt hour. So from nine cents to $7. Now the government has to step in and cap it, right? They did cap it right now at 40 cents per kilowatt hour, but that doesn't mean they stopped the price. That just means the consumers are paying 40 and the government is subsidizing the rest. So I gotta ask Germany and all of its acolytes who, who firmly believe in wind, when does it work, right? When does the good part of going green in Germany, it's been 20 years and half a trillion euro, when is it gonna kick in, right? When did the German people say, remember when we used to pay nine, I should do a German accent, but that may be offensive. Remember when we used to pay nine cents per kilowatt hour and now we pay four? They, they, don't, have, they don't have more electricity, they have less, they have higher prices. So when does the good part of going green work? And Texas, I gotta tell you, I love Texas but you're making a huge mistake on the state level that you are embracing this technology that is a proven failed technology. You are embracing it. And what is the, what our politicians are saying, woof, 2021, that was bad. 700 people died, that aside, that was bad. Let's hope that doesn't happen again. That's not policy, right? That's not, that's not adult policy to say, fingers crossed this winter isn't a bad one. And so is Texas reversing course? They're not, and, and that is, dangerous to put your constituents' lives on the line like that. And fewer people would allow it if it was one of their children who were the 700 who died. But they were 700 voiceless, powerless people, not, a, you know, mostly poor. And that's why they say, wow, that was too bad. Yeah, terrible storm. And they move on with their life. And that's, boy, that, that's, that's awful to look at your constituents as disposable because of an agenda that you want to push down their throats. Well, no, that's exactly right. And um, I, I'm, I'm going to keep pushing here and, and elsewhere to try to get more free market reforms, the same things that you're working on. And I, I want to give you one last word here, though. What, what, what do you think the next steps are to let people prosper? Like, well, what makes you um, excited about the future? Is, is there anything <laughs> that, that really keeps you optimistic? Yeah, I do think the Americans um, um, don't have short-term memory loss. You know, heck, we still honor our troops who fought in Iraq and Afghanistan. And it's a long, I mean, 9-11 wasn't yesterday, and we still remember it like it was. I gotta think our short-term memory is gonna kick in and people are gonna say, you know, 2019 was not that long ago and gas was $1.97 a gallon and, and we had record years of retail, hotel, travel, restaurant, right? Like there was a tremendous amount of economic flourishing in 2019 and there was a reason why and it's because energy was cheap. And yes, the election's coming up and war in Ukraine and people are talking trans issues. I got to think, it, you know, they always talk about kitchen table issues. I got to think there are enough kitchen table issues of people who are like, you know what, I don't want to pay $1.30 anymore for this product when I know it should be a dollar. I got to think that will kick in. I'm hopeful that that's what will move people to say, I just want life to be cheap again, because it was cheap, right? You remember the, the previous two administrations ago when the Obama team used to talk about their desire for European style pricing. Americans don't want European style pricing. And my, I am hopeful they'll remember the good old days and know we can go back to them. We just have to get the right people in office. That's, that's where I'm, yep. I'm thinking. Well, I'm right there with you. I remember that, what was the quote? Um, prices will necessarily skyrocket. Fossil fuel prices yeah. will necessarily skyrocket. I think it was Obama said. Awful. Isn't that terrible yeah, to say so that? Terrible. Like, well, that's too bad. That's just the way it's going to be. Right. No. No. no, no, that's exactly right. Well, I mean, you know, we've seen prices fall for so many things and we're able to purchase so much more today. And 
Unfortunately, Governor, it's making it worse for us in the process. And so we've got to have some good folks like you to come in and make the key reforms that we need and, and continue to lead the way on, on good public policy um, so that we can get more people to prosper at the end of the day. So thank you, Daniel, and um, God bless you and your family. And uh, thank you so much for being on the show. Great to be on with you. Thank you, Vance. Appreciate it. All right, great. Well, I'll have you on again. It was a great discussion. And uh, for the audience, if you would, please go out and like this, leave us a five-star rating and share it with your friends and family. So that way we can have more ideas of how to prosper and, and, and know what fossil fuels are bringing about in the future for you know, innovation, new technologies, and just a path to prosperity at the end of the day. So until next time, let people prosper. <laughs>